0: Hello, my name is Nick Spacek, and you're listening to From and Inspired By, a podcast about soundtracks and the people who make them. On this episode, we talk about the 1983 slasher, The House on Sorority Row, with Cal Everett, guitarist and singer of Power Pop Band, Four Out of Five Doctors. Crosman's 1983 movie The House on Sorority Row might not be the first to come to mind when thinking about discussing the slasher genre, but for those who have seen it, it's a real diamond in the rough with a solid cast and a wry sense of humor that keeps it entertaining from start to finish. The story of seven sorority sisters who accidentally kill their house mother and are then picked off by a mysterious killer, it's a fantastic movie. Like every sorority or fraternity-based movie, it has a big blowout party sequence, and since that movie was shot in and around Baltimore, it should come as no surprise that Washington, D.C., power pop band four out of five doctors would perform at said party it took a while to set this up but we were able to track down and talk with four out of five doctors guitarist and singer cal everett about the band's appearance in the film as well as their history with another lesser known horror film the boogeyman given the fact that the director's commentary on the various discs uh that have been released for house on sorority row it was really nice to get some behind the scenes stories from cal and uh, while it's probably our longest ever episode ever the conversation is pretty wonderful so do please take a listen I guess, I guess the real question is, Like, when did you start playing music?
1: When did I start playing music? You mean all the way back to the gritty beginning, or when did I start playing pop music?
0: Like, when did you start playing Like, you, bands and stuff.
1: Yeah, the, I started when I was, like, uh, I started in third grade. Oh, wow. When I was, so I was, like, seven or eight years old. Back, back in those days, as I date myself as a 60 somewhat year old man, uh, back in those days, they actually kind of gave you music lessons in, in public school, and there was a group class, a group piano class after school which was like a half an hour after school and it was so archaic back then it's we didn't get real pianos there were no keyboards the teacher had a piano and what she gave you was about the uh, two octaves a two octave range painted piece of plywood which had the keys painted on it and you just put your fingers where, you know, this is this and this is that, and now you go home and you practice it on your, on your real piano. I'm not kidding. That's what it was. And everybody I tell that story to, like I've got two heads. But it's for real. They, they didn't have the budgets and stuff for digital keyboards and stuff, and they couldn't give everybody a piano, so they literally gave us a painted board that was the shape of a keyboard, you know, like a small digital unit you can buy these days, about two octaves, maybe two and a half octaves. But they didn't make any noise. It just sat there in front of you, and you just practiced putting your fingers in the right place, and then the keys were lettered, you know, the, uh, all the notes were lettered, and then you would go home, and she'd give you a piece of music to work on that that sequenced the notes that you learned to play, and you'd go learn it. And then finally that led to a private teacher, and then I don't know, kept playing. I was one of those weird kids that hung with it, you know, a lot of kids, and I knew lots of them. My buddies, you know, you start. everybody starts playing an instrument, and then, you know, one by one they start dropping out, few kids last through. i was one of the weird guys that stayed with it and played piano all the way up through high school i ended up actually getting a scholarship to college to washington conservatory of music in st louis when i was a sophomore in high school oh wow and by that time i was beginning to my my musical interests were beginning to diverge and i was getting a lot more into rock and pop and i had probably started noodling around a little bit with writing and composing and the funny a funny little aside on on the scholarship thing i had this woman who was my teacher and she would come to the house and her name was evelyn aarons she was from dupont circle down in washington dc and my parents at uh, that time i lived in potomac maryland when i was going to high school and this woman and i was I, like i said i was a pretty aggressive student I, I you know i practiced i did everything but i was getting bored quickly with what was going on and i wanted to I wanted to play different types of music, and I wanted to improvise. I wanted to doodle, around, you know. I, I wanted to jam things up, and that this woman was incredibly straight-laced, incredibly strict about playing the classics and all that kind of crap. And, <laughs> and of course, I had a scholarship, and she was sponsoring me allegedly, and I had passies like music exams. Now, here's the thing. But I I always told my parents, there's something weird about this woman. She's something off, Mom. She's like, she's not right. She's strange. You know, she actually, and my mom's, well, you know, she's a music teacher. She's not married. She's probably just, you know, old school mom type. Well, it turns out after a couple of years of doing this, by the time I was a senior in high school, uh, I think it was my senior, maybe it was my junior year, the woman, get this, the woman, we find out, suddenly she doesn't show up for a couple of lessons. We miss it, and then we read in the Washington Post or the Evening Star whatever paper it was back then. Um, the woman had been arrested. Evelyn Aarons, my my piano teacher, my sp- my sponsor, had been arrested for running a twenty five girl prostitution ring <laughs> in Dupont in Dupont Circle. No shit. I still have the article in, a, in, in upstairs it's a scrapbook. It's the it's just another one of those funny like where in the hell did this come from? And I've told that story a billion times too. Uh, but yeah, it was for real. And, and my mom said, well, after the fact, I, said, I told you she was real. Almost. Dad, you mentioned she was always talking about having to get back to see her girls. And I said, "And my mom said, I knew she wasn't married. I thought maybe she was just divorced or something." So that's kind of how that one does. So my scholarship got a little tainted, <laughs> <laughs> and I decided not to pursue it um, when I graduated high school. By that time, I had, I had been in several rock bands and was starting my own groups, and I was writing pretty. Pretty actively because this was I graduated in 1973 and it would only be another three years before I met George Pittaway, who was the, one of the guys from the doctors. I met him first through an ad in the paper and then George and this guy ripped somebody I can't remember because he didn't stay with the band but he they were friends and they needed a bass player and I was very very active and I played around the area a lot and uh, got with them and then we met Jeff and then me and Jeff and George and a, a succession of drummers hammered it out in the basement for a couple of years, three years, just writing and recording, and writing and recording, writing and recording. And then finally we um, stumbled upon Tom Blue, the drummer, who we also met, and in the paper. God bless the papers and classified ads <laughs> back then. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't have all that ease and maintenance like social networking and Craigslist and all that. We had to just put ads and hope that somebody that wasn't a psycho killer answered. And so that's, that's kind of as quickly as I could thumbnail my gestation from uh, learning how to play on a piece of plywood to joining the Doctors and getting our record contract, which how long? House on Sorority Row, I'm trying to say, that actually happened before the second album and just before the first album was actually released but had been recorded for quite a while. So what was your question?
0: Oh, I was going to ask, like, so how long between like when the, the Doctors became a band and like yeah. ha- uh, releasing that first album?
1: So, well, the album came out in 1980. Right, it came out in January of 1980, I think. Yeah, 1980, January 1980. It was actually done in '79, I think. We had finished it in the fall of '79, and we wanted it out for Christmas. You know, uh, who yeah, would, yeah, right? Yeah, obviously. but our record record company and their infinite wisdom of about three or four really horrendous bad management decisions they made was to wait and hold it off, so people get lost in the shuffle. We want to release it in January. Who buys records in January? <laughs> You know, it's like, are you crazy? Uh, Anyway, so we, like I said, I met George in 1976, and we got signed in 1979,
0: so three years. So you've you've been a band for, like, three years, and you record and release your your first album. Yep. Yep. And then what's what's interesting is, like, I always forget, because, like, House on Sorority Row is, like, the movie... That like because you're in it like I mean for a really extended period of time, but like you actually yeah. had like a couple of songs in another horror movie, the the Boogeyman. We which, did, which is it's it's fairly notorious because it's fairly yep. terrible. It's awful, and it was like one of John Carradine's. I think one of John
1: Carradine's last movies.
0: John Carradine. Um, I I have a question. Like I, my question is yep. always like, if there was a movie, he said no to. Because I don't think there was. Yeah.
1: No, I think he got a lot like Bella Lugosi in the end. You know, where no, he'd just take anything. You know, it's work, and he was a working guy. Um, I, yeah, we were in the boogeyman. It ended up that our music hit the cutting room floor. We have great credits in there. A credits like four songs in the movie, but we're not in the movie at all. Not once. Not not our song was supposed to be playing. One song was supposed to be playing on the radio, and one scene is somebody drove away. That got dumped. Uh, a couple others were supposed to be background and they were all in there in the unedited cuts but they never made the final film. So um it was kind of weird and that we all, all we did was just kind of give them the stuff like here here's the music and I think several of the things we gave them were just our basement demos because I think when that movie was done we hadn't even re- done our first album yet. So they were getting our basement demos of songs that would eventually wind up on the first record and it was just, I, I was very excited about it. I have like, the inside story about this and, and why, even though both of these movies were, you know, kind of stunningly, one totally bad and the other just fairly mediocre. Um, although I'm kind of heartened to see what are, I guess, I don't know, it, I guess the years have been kind to Households Because I get a lot of people say, oh, I really liked that movie. It was really good. Uh, and I'm just thinking, I, I can't remember last time I actually sat through it. I just remember it as not being very good, but it didn't matter to me because personally, me, as I told you before, I'm, I'm sitting in my museum of <laughs> universe. I, I have been a horror movie fan since the age of about eight or when Shock Theater came on. When they first released all the, re-released the universal horror films, you know, Frankenstein, Dracula, yes, late yes, at night, 11 o'clock. I was one of those kids, me and my brothers, you know, with the sheets over our head, watching the black and white TV, you know, until... Twelve o'clock or one in the morning, whenever these things were, I loved them, and I still to this day uh, I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan. I'm, I'm looking at my library right across here, my you know several hundred DVDs and Blu-rays that I've got crammed in my office here, <laughs> and I love them. I still go every year. I do a, I go to New York. My uh, two of my kids live in New York City, and my oldest boy Corey, who's up there. I kind of I got I got I got him infected with the movie bug really early, um and he's 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 a huge movie fan, but not just a hard fan. I mean he's all over the board. He goes to film festivals and he, he also was a freelance writer. He's actually in advertising, but he wrote for indie Wire and a couple of other oh, places. He runs the there's some director he really, really likes Paul somebody, somebody, three names who did um
0: Oh, Paul Thomas Anderson? Got,
1: yes, Corey runs his website. He, oh he, wow he, he did he, so he's the guy. Um, he's a huge fan of, of, of Paul Thomas Anderson. So anyway, uh, I digress. So I'm a huge horror movie fan. And then when the opportunity came along, like um, it was the brother of a girl who was – George's girlfriend's brother knew the director of the film, Mark, whoever it was. Rossman. Um, Rothman, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, my details are a little blurry. But anyway, new Mark Rothman, and that's how we got in the movie. And I, I I was so excited. I was just like, oh my God, finally. I didn't give a shit about The Doctors being in. I didn't care that our music was. I, I'm in a horror movie. That was, that was like top priority for me. I'm in a horror movie. You know, I've, I've met a goal in my life. Now, not only do I enjoy them, I can say I have a filmography. <laughs> <laughs> Where right. I'm in one, so that was really exciting for me.
0: Well, and you get to be in it, like like uh, we talked about earlier. Like you're you're yeah. in the film for a pretty extended period of time. It's not just like usually most the band at the party right. in in a film of which there are many. They get right. like you know thirty seconds of their song. I mean, there's like four of your songs in that film.
1: Yeah, they're playing the background all over the place. So they they were really nice about giving us a nice segue, and they, you know, we had, I got speaking lines, and the, the scene we were in with the, the dance sequence where we're introduced to the girls was actually about two or three minutes longer in the original version. They, had, they cut it down. They even had to dug words in my mouth to make it work because there was this whole snowball dance sequence that was supposed to happen there. Where I explained the rules to everybody, and then I, I talked to the girl, Vicky, who's down, who then went on to become a fairly significant soap opera actress, I think. Pretty shocked. Sure. Um, and that all got edited out, but again, I, I didn't really care. I just, now I, I can go on YouTube and find almost every scene that we're in because people have compiled <laughs> them, them up on the internet. And I, like I said, I still get people called my friends. you know, just, Oh man, I was wondering, I was wondering and there you were with that stupid neckerchief on again, just stylistic, you know, faux pas of the time that so, you did. But, uh, it was, I, I was just so excited to, to be in it and, my kids love it. You know, it's a great thing to pass on your
0: kids.
1: They go, ah, yeah, sure. And then,
0: sure enough. <laughs> how, that- how long did it take to shoot it? Because like, the interesting thing is there's a commentary on the DVD, and yeah. th- it is it is it is not a particularly great commentary in that like, no. they do not have a lot of information Talking about that scene, like it's just like, oh, this was like they have the the one shot where like this is the shot we're most proud of because it's like the panning and showing all the girls looking at each other and it's very impressive, right? But there's no there's no like it's this huge party sequence, and I'm like I have no idea how long it took them to shoot it.
1: (laughs) It took just about all night. We we were there and they shot it just outside of College Park, Maryland at this place in Towson. Um, uh, it was an empty, actually an empty old house that looked like a fraternity or sorority house, and um, some of the scenes I think were actually shot at University of Maryland. But but the pivotal, all the, all the house scenes were shot in this real house, and they they had dolled up the whole house and made it look so it wasn't like set pieces. Um, they spent a lot of time and energy on on, this, on the house uh, to be basically the whole movie takes place there. But that one scene, the party scene with everybody and all the extras and everything, it took us just about all night to shoot. We got there the afternoon <clears throat> or the, yeah, early afternoon, the day of the, the shoot. Um, and we had just gotten back from, we were touring at the time, and we had just gotten back, I think maybe we had just gotten back from, I don't know if it was touring or recording, I, I can't remember. Um, but anyway, the, the I, I had this, as the times were back then of course now i don't go anywhere near the sun without you know basically liquid sunscreen on me but i had a huge tan i was you know my hair was all bleached out and i was really tan and i remember i had to spend extra time in in the makeup chair because they were trying to powder out they said you can't be this tan on, on film it'll look too silly so they were caking my ass up with all this really light powder you know to get some of the brown the bronze out of me and then it just it kind of makes me look i always thought when i saw the the aftermath. And even today, if I watch one of the things on YouTube, I look like a mannequin. I just so much stuff on my face. I'm afraid to smile. But uh, yeah, so we took about all night. I recall getting out of there. It was practically dawn and they weren't totally done. I know our scene just setting up for them because they had to do several, several different angle shots and different cameras um, to get all those. I think some of it was shot from behind my head you know, looking out at the crowd, and then they had the crowd looking up, and then they had to go through the, the individual people. So it was a good, I don't know, 20 hours probably from start to finish, from the day before till the morning after, I, if I'm remembering correctly, and I think I am. I just remember it was a long night for us, but I didn't care. I was just so excited about being in the movies. So. And at that point, I had no idea what the movie really was, even. <laughs> I knew it was a horror movie, but I didn't know, you know, any of the good stuff. I would have loved to have been around, like, for the special effects and the death scenes. I, I just would have loved that, but wasn't the case, couldn't hang around um, so it was a good long time and they could have when they were doing any of those I, I don't know where Mark is or his the guy that was the brother, I'm trying to what was his name the brother of of uh, Roxanne Roxanne's brother was the produ- uh, assistant producer, or associate producer or something on the thing, I can't remember his name but anyway, um, they could always call us
0: there are yeah. songs from like both of your albums in that movie Yeah. but i know that yeah. like i know that like the timing because of like when you film a movie and when a movie is yep. actually released yep. so did they sort of let you pick which songs or did you just like present them with like they, here's all the stuff well, we have they, recorded
1: they had well they, they there was two i think two there was two pro- it was a two pronged attack there were the songs that you, that are on there from our second record, again, those are our basement demos because we hadn't recorded the second <sighs> record yet. So Waiting for Roxanne is not the album version. It's our version that we recorded. It's an eight-track, literally an eight-track, one-inch tape demo that we did. But remember, now we had been, we had been archiving in the basement for nearly three years. We got really, really good at basement demos. We got, they were, it was hard to tell that it wasn't a, a studio recording. You know, what I mean, we got really good at it. Jeff was a, became quite a master at production, um, but so yeah, it was between the records. So the, the Mark and the, and the gang, they were, the, this might have been one of the more earlier, or certainly at the at the doorstep of the beginning of cross marketing pop and movies. You know what I mean? The eighties probably really blew that up more than any other era. And so Mark and them, I think their decision was, well, these guys got an album coming out. We should tie the movie in kind of with the album in case the album breaks. And we were getting a lot of airplay. Unfortunately, not on mainstream radio stations. Most of our airplay was college radio, uh, and we got a lot of college radio airplay, like tons and tons and tons. It's probably what helped us stay around as long as we did. Um, so they they were thinking, well, let's pull some songs from the first album to feature like Modern Man and Waiting for a Change. I think we're in there. and, then because jeff i think jeff had suggested well look you know we're we're, that's already in the can and it's being it's being released i can't i'm trying to remember when the movie came out in relation to when the first record came out i think the movie came out like in in between but right very shortly after the first album was released i think or maybe i'm thinking it was after it was recorded i think it was after it was released anyway um And then Jeff was suggesting, well, we're going to be going into the studio again and doing a second record, and we're going to have these songs. Can we put a couple of these in here? And for whatever reason, they said, yeah, sure. Like I said, I'm kind of surprised myself they let us get so many songs in there in such a brief period of time. But like you said, it kind of spans over the movie to where it's not just us on stage all around. They're wafting in the background in in scenes coming later, you know what I mean? Which is kind of funny. So I think that's how it came about. They were trying to tie in with the, the first record and any possible success it might have. And Jeff had suggested to them, well, we're going to be doing another record. Can we slip some of these in here? We're kind of excited about them to kind of promote them. Um, this is before we even had record company approval, I think, of those songs. <laughs> you know, we didn't even know they were going to say yes to any of these things we wanted to do. But um, So that I, I'm pretty sure that's how that went down.
0: So the the movie comes out and... I wasn't quite sure like how long did the band last after that second album came out. Like I, I was never quite certain as to like when the band second finally Second album came broke out
1: and yeah, came out in 1982. Right, so 80 was the first one, 82 was the next one. We were touring between the records and then we went to record it in Atlanta, Georgia. No, let me think about this. That's not right. My timing is yeah, 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 yeah. Because um, Corey was born in nineteen in November of nineteen eighty one, and we were in Atlanta recording that record in the summer of nineteen eighty one. Because I remember my wife Wendy uh, came down to visit us for a while. She was big as a house, and she still had to carry until November. She was huge with all her babies. We gave good baby over here at the Everett household. <laughs> all of ours were ten pounds plus. Even the girl. I've got three kids. They're all 10 pounds and they're all skinny as rails right now. Um, So, yeah, it was 1981. Summer of 1981, we recorded the record. It came out in the spring of 1982. We were touring and other things started happening in our lives, particularly mine. And I, um, I think it was that summer the summer of eighty two or the fall the fall of eighty two or very very early in nineteen eighty because by nineteen eighty three we were duske's so we were out it was over um in the summer of nineteen eighty two I said music's going a different way and and this you know we we went out on that hair band tour, which is why our second record sounds at least the first side sounds markedly different from wait wait wait, wait hair band tour done. Yeah, we um, yeah, the first tour, like I said, in, in in another one of many horrible decisions that I've already told you one that our management and record company made, they thought it would be a great idea for us, a sparkly, little, jangly guitar pop new wave band, this is right after our first album, to go out on tour with Richie Blackmore's Rainbow Pat Tra- and Pat Travers, who were headbanger, hair metal, yeah. Yeah, not only that, wait a minute, it gets better, Nick, if you think that's hilarious. It gets better. The tour was, um, we were picking up the tour in Seattle, Washington, which is all the way on the other side of the United States. We had to drive there. We were on tour in the South at the time. We were were touring Southern states, um, college towns with uh, Jim Carroll. Jim Carroll, the writer, uh, songwriter, you know, People Who Died in Basketball Diaries. We were co-billing with him all through the South. And then we had to drive, get in a van and drive. Now, get this. They sent us out on this tour, which is awful. We, we really don't want to be on it. We know it's not our crowd. We go out. We're driving all the way out there. Um, unbeknownst to us, the record had not even been released west of the Mississippi yet, nor would it be until this entire tour was over. So here's how it went. They put us on tour with a band that attracts primarily um, quaaluded out teenage boys, who just want to bang their heads. Uh, it was, we, it became known to us and it, you know, at, you know, years later, I look back at it and it's funny to me and it was horrifying at the time, but funny and it, when I did a couple of doctor's unions for years, I loved telling the story and I, I still do. Like we went out there and here we are, this sparkly band and we got all these weird ass new wave costumes on. And we come running out on the stage, you know, to open our first big Coliseum tour, uh, And I've never been hit with so many items in my life. And we were so naive, so like unaffected or something about what was going on. We literally stayed out there and played our entire 45 or 50-minute opening set whilst being pelted with every item this crowd could find. At one point, I was hit with like a 16-ounce cup of beer in the face. And I was soaking wet. And we just, I never, I never got off the mic. I never stopped singing or stopped playing. (laughs) And we finished our shit. and they booed accordingly. And we went backstage and we were, it looked like we had just marched out of Vietnam. We were shell shocked. It was like, we were looking at each other like, what the fuck just happened? What, what was that all about? It was, it was frightening. It was, and the remainder of the tour would be a repeat every city we went to on this tour. Half the time, we weren't even billed. We weren't on the marquee. We weren't even on the fucking programs. We weren't advertised in the paper. So here are these guys coming out to see their favorite headbangers. and Who are these pipsqueaks with this rinky-dink music they're playing up here? So we had to go from Seattle to uh, Portland to San Francisco to Los Angeles to San Diego to Phoenix. To Denver. That was was like a big J. By the time we got to Denver, we had completely abandoned every song on our record. Uh, We were wearing white T-shirts and torn up jeans. (laughs) We turned our amps up to as loud as we could turn them. Um, We played songs that we had actually written, um, but we just played them for fun. We just jammed, and we went out for 20 minutes played the loudest shit we could play <laughs> and started going up o- and started going over. And then we left. I, it was funny. We, we really got on well with the, the crew. You know, they were very sympathetic and um, they were, they started to, round about San Francisco. I think they started a pool in the back about how long we would last. And one of the road, <laughs> one of the road guides for the other band. And like I said, they were all peaches. Everybody were, were good to us. Just the crowds weren't even the other bands were like, okay. Um, the backstage guys who we really re- hung out with more than anything else started calling us four out of five minutes, <laughs> <laughs> which is just hilarious. And uh, so we, had, we, like, like I said, we just threw our album out the window. We changed our act uh, just so we could survive. It was like, uh, we've got to get through this. We've got to finish the tour. And they hate everything we're doing, so let's do what they like. And that's what finally worked. The last couple of years, we had it perfected by Denver. I think we actually started it. In San Diego And then we just said Let's just play this shit And play 20-25 minutes And get off stage uh, Which we did So that's kind of how that ended up Now In 82 Summer of 82 That's when I said music's changing It's it's. We're not We're not We're not Doing You know we're Every day This was right 80s were hitting big Everything was synth drums And keyboards And stuff that weren't Weren't our sound in. We were amazingly adaptable, the doctors. We had three writers in the band, and we were incredibly adaptable. So we could write anything we wanted, but uh, my feeling was, you know, I, I don't want to chase another trend. That's what we did before. We did that with New Wave. We accidentally were good at it, and, but that, I don't think that's where any of our hearts were. When we first got together, the, the, the three of us, the three writers, Jeff, George, and me, um, we couldn't have been more different as far as where our styles were coming from. Um, I was probably, <laughs> I was n- no kidding. I was probably writing material that I could have easily sold to the Partridge Family, <laughs> and uh, and I uh, just pure pop, you know, just sugary poppy, hooky-laden stuff. It's just that's what I did. It's, it's what I liked, you know. Um, and then Jeff Jeff wrote like space age uh, fusion jazz. And George, uh, nobody could really describe the way George liked to write. He, he wrote songs as if the Beatles had been raised in India. <laughs> and all of their stuff was camel-driven, weird, modal guitar. So we, it took us the years that we were honing our stuff to all meld together and find one sound. And that happened to be the new wave sound. It just happened to be great for us at the time because we all had enough. I had enough melodic sense to add to give it that part. Jeff had enough of the weird, edgy, um, you know, hiccupy kind of um, quirky side that made New Wave and that that kind of pop good. And George had just enough of that flaming guitar influence to attract just regular rock people. So that's that's how our chemistry finally gelled, and that's how we got signed, putting out a demo that reflected all that. In 82, I wasn't interested in doing that again. I said, I don't, you know, we, we, gotta, we might as well just sell our gear. Um, I had other personal issues I was dealing with, some drug stuff, and just I just wanted to change. I said, you know, I'm in a real – this isn't going good for me, guys. We, I need a big change. I, I said, I know we're better than all this. We need to write. And we actually did go into the studio, and, and we wrote and were presenting stuff that we really thought were, was our best work, and it was. Um, but it was back to where it was like three, you could distinctly tell that, if, if did you not know these guys were in a band together? You would say these are three completely different bands because of the, what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. So even though we made a, a gallant effort at another two recordings that we did on our own here in D.C., um, it was pretty much the, the end of it all. I had a kid at this time, and like I said, was trying to straighten out my life. I went got a square job somewhere and pretty much hung it up for, a long time before I turned around and got back into live music and playing again, I always wrote. I kept writing it. It's kind of like a, you know, just something you do. And just I don't golf, so I write songs. You <laughs> can't help it. I'm driving down the I'm driving down the road, and the song pops in my head, and I just hum it, and I remember it. So, um, as performing stuff, I had pretty much dropped out for a day, and so I would say we were we were completely washed out by 1983. So it was pretty meteoric. It was you know. If you don't count the basement time, from the time we got signed in 1979 to the time we were we, or we didn't get our contract uh, picked up or we didn't get our option, that was the other ugly piece of business that the managers did to us. Um, we had a contract which gave the record company the right to pick up an option or not, but even if they didn't pick up the option, we were still held in check for another, I think, three years where we could not work. For anyone else oh. i'm thinking what in the hell did what and we didn't see that our lawyer, oh, i we were idiots and so none of us could really do anything um and we didn't <laughs> we everybody just said well we right. we're tried those other couple of records that we did but we never released them we just we had the master masters i think we finally released them about five years ago when we did our second doctor's reunion thing here in dc which we did two of them they were great sold out lots of people it was it was a big love fest lots of fans from all over the country showed up which we were kind of marveled at like (laughs) wow that was awful sweet and we finally compiled all the stuff all the outtake not all of it but as much as we could that we thought was presentable from our our studio sessions that we did right after the second record and we put them on this thing called post-op and uh it was interesting. It's it's definitely different. It's definitely a different recording, and that and then we that was it. We were pretty much done until we did our reunion shows in two thousand and whatever.
0: So what was your was, what was think, your yeah. square job?
1: At first, oddly enough, I, I somehow oh I know how my wife was working for this small international trading company here in Virginia, and um, I uh, they needed somebody to. They were What they did was they worked on large uh, vocational technical projects uh, funded by international monetary organizations like the World Bank and IDB. I'm um, uh, not IDB, that's the damn movie people. <laughs> um, international Bank, you know, uh, Exim Bank and stuff like that. And primarily in Southeast Asia, uh, Thailand, Indonesia was one of their big clients. So they were small. They were working down at the bottom of townhouse. And they suddenly had... Found themselves with this multi-million, tens of million-dollar contract that they won. They didn't have the manpower to do it. They need literally needed somebody to come in and run the photocopier to to photo to uh, run off copies of the bid packages for the governments and the banks and all that kind of shit. And I said, "Well, I'll do it." Sure. Um, well, I went in there and started doing it, and uh, I was running this big package. Too and I, I just picked up this mistake, going, "This is there's a big pricing error here, and this equipment isn't right." I uh, brought in somebody's attention. I said, hey, you're making a big mistake here. And they said, oh, yeah, you're right. Good for you. Good eyes. And the next thing I know, I'm a project coordinator. And then <laughs> the next thing I know, I'm a project manager. And uh, a bunch of years go by, and I buy a house. I have a couple more kids and live in the dream. You know what I mean? <laughs>
0: back together for the 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 that first reunion like was it just like the the rise of social media and being able to cut the, it yes. seems like so many that's how so many reunions have happened like in the last like 10 or 15 years it's I, just like well I we started we, talking yeah, to each we, other then, again
1: well we never stopped talking to each other we 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 were we remained very amicable we all okay. saw each other tommy tommy was the hardest guy to stay in touch with because he moved out to denver And then he finally moved to Washington state or or the other way around. He moved out to Washington state first because that's where his family was from and his family and stuff. And then he moved to Denver. So we, but we always spoke on the phone and we called every Christmas. No, we stayed very uh, friendly. Um, the doctors, there was no bad blood or anything. We, you know, we just went our, we just did our things, but we always saw each other, always talked to each other when we could, um, we not best friends or anything. And we're not like they were my neighbors, but every Christmas or we get together. And I think, we did the Jam and Java thing. They asked us. We, we didn't set it up. We, we actually did one, one smaller reunion in 1990. Because by this time, I was working, um, I was working for a family business. Uh, we, me and my two brother-in-laws had, were running a chain of pizzerias here in D.C. So I was working for them. And there was this place, this very iconic place in Washington, D.C. called the Bayou. In fact, they've done documentaries on it recently that have been on PBS and everything. It was a, I mean, it started way back in the 20s with jazz performers and stuff, but it became a huge rock club. And it was pivotal to the Doctors' um, uh, rise to getting signed and everything here in D.C. It's where our fan base started. The Bayou was like our, our home base. We played the Bayou. And uh, they were getting ready to shut down. And so... Jeff had been calling me, Hey, you know, let's do Dr. Gene. And I was, I was pretty much of a dick about it. I, I really didn't want to do it. I didn't want to go backwards. I just said, you know, guys, I don't know. I it, it just could be hugely embarrassing. And I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I was worried that George, George, uh, uh, he had gotten weirder. And <laughs> I mean, I love a guy to death, but he's a weird character um still is but i wouldn't say no to him ever and i was just thinking it just, there's nothing good can come from this except for embarrassment and by that time i was kind of writing and recording again and i had a different project going on and i was and i said um but i said okay let's let's do this it's the bayou it'll it, it'll be fun and uh you know we need to play that place and so and we didn't know what to think and and we so we said we'd play the bayou and they started advertising the show and we went there, and it said the bay was this huge cavernous two floor place with a upper level and a bottom level, and it was great. We got there, and I noticed the first thing when I got in there for sound check and load in stuff, I'm looking upstairs, and all the chairs are turned up on the tables. And I said, "Well, what's that all about?" And I asked the manager, "So well, what's going on? Well, we you know we're not sure you guys are gonna you guys are gonna need that," and that uh, kind of broke my heart. And I went, "Oh, really?" And then I, then I thought, well, what the hell am I thinking? Of course. We, we haven't done anything in over <laughs> 10 years. Yeah, you're right. Well, long story short, we, we sold the place out. They, they had to open the upstairs. They had to put all the, they had a line outside the door. And that was like kind of, wow, wasn't that great? And then we had a great evening. It was possibly one of the best shows we had ever done. Um, everybody had just gotten better at what they did. Um, and it was wonderful. And I thought, there you go. Done and done. Thanks, guys. Shook hands. Great. That was what a great way to cap it all off. I'm glad we did that. Well, uh, 15 years later, uh, a club owner in, at this really local but um, very popular place in Vienna, Virginia, had had contacted Jeff going, hey, would you guys be interested in getting together again and doing a show here? And then I was like, no, no fucking way. Um, why, Jeff? You know, I said, because we the Bayou thing. It was that was as up a note as we could have asked for. <laughs> I said, Now you're tempting fate. And then I, I finally relented. I said, Look, I'll do it, I'll do it on one condition and one condition only. And actually I ended up having about eight conditions, but the moment I said, We play every song on both albums. We don't leave anything off. We do every song and we do them in order and we play both records just just like we do, like we used to do. Only when we toured, I remember there was always Three or four songs off the first record we'd never played, and there was more than that off the second record we just never played them ever live. And I said, "I'll do it if we play everything live, and we play it in sequ- sequential order like the records." And we have our first set is the first album, our second set is the second album, and so they all agreed they were all on board. And I thought, well, this is going to be fun because we've never played some of these. And they're bitching good songs, but they're hard. They're really difficult. So we worked it up, and we managed to sell that show out too. Um, Two hundred. I mean sell out at this particular club was only 250 people so it wasn't like the bayou which was like 600 people um but it was great it was like oh my god i can't believe this happened and then the next year they wanted us to do it again and we booked two nights um at the same club and sold them both out again and then that was it and it was mainly because the club wanted us to do it and after the last reunion we all agreed
0: that's enough
1: we we don't need to do this anymore and uh so that that was it
0: so what are you doing now
1: right now uh, you aside mean, from packing up your house, <laughs> I'm packing up my house because I've got to move because I don't need to live in this big old house. Cause all my children are grown. Um, I'm still playing. I play every summer and this was something I l- kind of lucked into. I, I wouldn't call it luck. I fell into oddly enough, 12 years. I can't believe it's been 12 years already. Jeff, um, from the band, Jeff Jefferson sent me an ad one day. He said, look, I found this on Craigslist. It's right up your alley. I had always, among other bands that I really, really liked, I was a huge devotee of the Beach Boys. I loved the Beach Boys. The main thing I loved about them was their harmonies. I just, I loved it. I I loved piecing them apart. And in fact, the, the demo, when I joined the doctors, the demo that I made for Jeff to show him what I could do was I made a sound on sound recording where i did all the vocals played all the instruments on god only knows from pet sounds <laughs> that's how i introduced myself to jeff going i did all that he that's says, an really? introduction said, yep yeah that's an introduction so he sent me this ad going um nationally touring beach boys tribute band looking for bass player vocals he said you should do this i and i said damn right so i, I contacted the guy and it was around christmas time or whatever year 12 years ago and the guy said oh i'm sorry he goes um I've already hired somebody for the position, uh, but thank you. You know, thanks for your information and all that. And I said, oh, yeah, easy come, easy go. A year later, one year later, the guy calls me back. Are you still available? Can you do this? So I said, yeah. I said, how did you remember He goes, oh, I keep a file on everybody I talk to. <laughs> <laughs> so he kept my name and all this stuff. So he called me back. I went and auditioned for that band, and I've been in it ever since. It's, we, do, we go all over the country, um, more i mean the farthest west i think we've gone so far is oklahoma so we don't go to california because california has their own beach boys tribute band they don't need to pay east coast (laughs) band to come out there and we play mainly summer concert fests and theaters and stuff like that it's all corporate gigs we don't do bars We don't do any of that stuff it's a very easy gig because once you learn your 40 beach your 40 beach boys songs there's no new songs to learn (laughs) so we practice a couple of times and we go out and we uh it's great money every gig and the the venues provide the back line, so there's none of that humping. And the demographic for the Beach Boys tribute bands is, is literally 65 to 75 years old. So the shows are always, like, early as hell. So you go someplace, you play at 7 o'clock, you're done at 9. It's like, these are great.
0: It reminds me of so when I, I saw the monkeys.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> the monkeys. So I do that as, as my fun. This keeps my chops up because, boy, i tell you what, singing technique. You're singing all night in the Beach Boys tribute band. You are working your throat. And I probably sing better now at 62 than I ever did when I was 20 with the doctors because I know what I'm doing now. It's such a shame. Anyway, um, I do that. I still play solo performances, and I do a lot of other concert venues in the area where I play with other musicians. My, brother is a, my brother-in-law is kind of a local show promoter and producer, and he does a lot of these. Um, he He likes doing puts together tributes to various artists that he really enjoys, but he does it by using all the high-powered local talent. Like, he'll get people who have big followings and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Local musician icons. And he puts them all together, even though they probably have never played together, and he puts these neat chemistry mixes of, why don't you play with this guy this time, and you guys have never met. and They're wonderful. They're really wonderful programs. I do three or four of those a year. Um, And I'm working on a CD which will be my, it's my, as I keep telling Todd Wright, who's the guy producing it with me, um, this is my epitaph. It's going to be the best thing I've ever done, bar none, probably the most creative, conceptual thing I've worked on. And it's, it's the songs that I'm including on it span 40 years of my songwriting. But they're all uniquely integrated in thematically because they're all very personal and, and very much from my life and my marriage and my livelihood and my friend it, it's all very personal and thematically It's it's um it's going to be wonderful my problem is the mills of the gods grind very very slowly for me when i'm doing <laughs> <laughs> because much like this phone call imagine that you know, going in and, and doing stuff. So I, I'm being hounded more by the people that are working with me than than they deserve. Um, but it, it it will be wonderful this time. I'm sure of that. And um, then I'll probably just I don't know. I, I got to move all my monster shit to another house <laughs> where I intend to just sit and build models and write music and record it for fun and uh, get more than one grandchild going on. <laughs> I got a granddad. I'm a granddad now. That was kind of a life change. <clears throat> so it took me a while to get used to that, but I'm okay with it now. It, you're fish, it's official if you think about, you know, when you're, I think, well, I'm geezing out, you know, but I never really felt it because I always thought I was kind of enthusiastic and still had a lot going on. I never got hung up on the whole age thing. It never bothered me until I was a granddad, and I was like, oh, God, it's totally
0: official. Like, <laughs> it's
1: just, there's no, there is no hiding from granddad. You know, you you got to own it, so I
0: did I would like to thank you so much for taking time out of your weekend to sit down and talk with me. This has been fantastic and fun. Thanks to Cal Everett for speaking with me. There are currently two versions of the House of Sorority Row available on Blu-ray, one from Scorpion Releasing that came out in 2014, as well as RoninFlix's limited edition release from earlier this year. You can find links to purchase both versions, as well as the music of 4 out of 5 Doctors, in the show notes for this episode, which are at fromandinspiredby.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at FromInspiredPod, and you can subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts and Stitcher as well. Please set up the website and click on the Give Us Money button to help pay for web hosting and long distance fees, and remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher as well. We'll be back in two weeks talking with director Jen Wexler and music supervisor Mittig Goodwin about the festival favorite punk rock slasher The Ranger. Until then, thanks for listening.